Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. Godly leaders are needed in every sphere of society. What does it take to be the kind of leader with whom God is pleased? Tom Phillips, Vice President of Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, tells about his journey with Christ. Find out what it means to follow God wholeheartedly. Discover how you can find and embrace your calling. Learn the true characteristics of a godly leader and how you can apply them at any age, stage, or sphere of influence that God has you in. After this episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit awardandseasonpodcast.org to download a free 30-day devotional that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today and taking this time. I know how busy you are. Thanks, Doug. Inadequate we are. I appreciate what you said, Doug, but our adequacy, all of us know, is from the Lord. And uh, leadership is an interesting facet of humility, isn't it? Because this is what we're uh, discussing today, and yet at the same time, we're driven to humility, whether we like it or not. And of course, revival is nothing but a renewed church coming back to normal Christianity, which must mean that we're abnormal to need to be renewed. And so as we take account of ourselves as leaders, servant leaders, yes, inadequate leaders, yes, the Holy Spirit is adequate, Jesus is adequate, and as he flows through us, uh, we become adequate. And that's certainly the Doug Stringer I know, and I'm honored to be here with you all. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tom. And a lot of times people see individuals like yourself and the successes of your life, but there's a journey to become who you are and, and the journey of the Lord that because of humility and the fear of the Lord, as scripture says, that the stewardship that we receive is riches, honor, and life. But that's not our goal. It's the stewardship because of walking in humility and the fear of the Lord. And you have an interesting journey as well. What brought you into the position you are now and the many years of serving with Billy Graham and traveling with him and, of course, ministering through the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and all of its entities. What was the journey for you to first get that revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection? Very good question. Uh, my grandfather was one of my great, uh, great heroes. He was a Southern Baptist circuit rider where um, on the Tennessee River many years ago in the corner of Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, with so many children under him, uh, he had, I think, a total of 14. He could leave the farm and go for a week, a month, to many, many preaching points on his horse and or mule. I remember seeing him as a young man sitting on Sundays with an open Bible. He's a big Welshman, and people would come from all over just to uh, have time with him. I watched him, and I watched the way he loved others, and I wanted to be somewhat like him. And as I got into Scripture, we had a great pastor who challenged us all to read the Bible every year. I didn't comprehend, really, the power of the Word of God, but I did want to honor this pastor. So I would read through the Bible with him each year. And as we began to get into the word, of course, one realizes that Jesus is our true model. And at eight years old, we had a visiting evangelist. He just simply said one night, how many love Jesus? And my little hand went up, you know, and how many would like to live for Jesus the rest of your life and love him? That was the invitation. I didn't realize what a desperate sinner I was, but I knew I wanted to love Jesus. And I wanted to do that. So I started going forward. And in a Southern Baptist church in those days, it was immature to go forward at that age. And so my mother grabbed my shoulder. But being ADD, I could easily 
get away. I love that because you're a multifaceted person. So to say you're ADD, I'm thinking, I've told people that too. I was going, I've got to be ADD. <laughs> I'm, got, I'm trying to juggle too much. We didn't know what it was, did we? But I'm, I'm certain those who had to put up with us were chagrined daily. The pastor obviously didn't know what to do. And uh, so he simply said, well, we'll talk to Tom over the week. And next week, we'll tell you what we think has happened. And they honestly believed me that I had wanted to follow Jesus with all my heart. And later, one of my cousins, a, a young lady who at 28 became an executive with an insurance firm in Memphis, Tennessee, <laughs> we were walking along a gravel road and she said, you really came to Jesus at eight years old, didn't you? And I said, yeah. She said, I came forward at 12, but I didn't meet him till 21. Mm-hmm. And I said, how did you know I came to Jesus? She said, you were the meanest kid i had ever met in my life. And you changed at eight years old. I was utterly shocked that I had been that mean. I knew I fought. If anybody hit me, I hit them hard, trying to get over the shock of being hit. But when you come to Christ like that, you really fall in love with Jesus. And so my little church had visitation on Thursday nights. And I was usually only a teenager that would show up. And I really didn't know enough to share my faith. But I would go with one older guy. We'd go to people's homes and talk about the Lord. So as I looked at my life, academically, I did it. I did well because I studied hard. I studied hard out of fear that I wouldn't make an A, frankly. I thought, well, how can I use whatever God has, quote, given me? That's how uh, arrogant I was. And I thought, well, I love people and I love biology and I'll be a surgeon. And that was my course of life until in college and pre-med. And I was doing just fine in the eyes of the world. God spoke to me. I heard a voice and he simply said, I don't know that Baptists should hear voices, but I did. He just said, Tom, what's more important, helping a man or woman have quality of life for 70 years or helping a man or woman have life eternal? That reminds me, Tom, of something Leonard Ravenhill used to write to me. And he wrote me in his way of scribbling his handwriting, but I would have to decipher it. But it actually said, let others live on the raw edge of the cutting edge. You and I should live on the edge of eternity. Those words have stuck with me all these decades and realizing that at the end of the day, there are multitudes upon multitudes in the valley of decision. And for many, eternity is right before them. And for me to get caught up in, you know, we all have personal lives and things that we have to walk through and and steward, but to never forget that many are on the edge of eternity every day. I think we all try to do our best in the Lord to plan our lives to serve him. There's hardly a better platform than being a surgeon. Someone's life is going to be in your hands in moments or in a couple of days. Uh, they, they trust you. And what a wonderful way to share Jesus. And I, al- I already was eventually a soul winner, as we say in the South. And I had a heart for the Lord. And when people would be pumping gas by me and God said, speak to them, I'd do it. Or in a grocery store and go tell her I love her and It was humbling and it was embarrassing, but God never failed me. And yet when he finally calls you into a ministry that is biblically one of the called ministries, like evangelist, pastor, teacher, administrator of his kingdom, you give up a lot in terms of the world to do what he's called you to do. And I think out of that obedience comes fulfillment. That's true. What brought you to the place, uh, your initial steps into what we would call full-time ministry today? Because we're all called to full-time ministry. 
It, we just have a different place of stewardship. If it's in the marketplace or where God calls us and what some call the seven mountains or the seven spheres as the late Bill Bright and of course, uh, Lauren Cunningham and Francis Schaefer and others kind of coined that initially. But what brought you into that place of stepping into this lifelong commitment? And I know it's not been easy. There is a covenant commitment first with the Lord. And then, of course, keeping that passion, what God's called you to do, to keep that fresh and alive. So what's been the journey that has taken you into vocational ministry that that really God has put in your heart to do? I totally agree with you about the potential of looking at ourselves as ministers and others as not. Mr. Graham, about 18 years ago, said the next great move of the Spirit of God could easily come in the marketplace. And frankly, I believe we're seeing that today. And we always want to encourage that in every way. I've got a young, quote, evangelist that I'm, quote, mentoring right now. And he's at the J.P. Morgan Chase as a stockbroker. And the uh, recent weekend together, he, he drove down and spent a weekend with me. And he said, do I need to leave J.P. Morgan Chase? And I said, how many of, of people like you are in your firm? And he said, not many. I said, then could you possibly be the missionary there? So that's the way it works, isn't it? I think that God uses our own pride if uh, sublimated to him in obedience to carry us into the servant leadership positions he initially engineered in the womb. So whenever God called me into the ministry, I wept because I wanted to be the wealthy Southern surgeon with a lot of position and prestige and power possessions. My father wept, my mother wept, everybody wept. Uh, I think my daddy thought he needed a doctor in the family to care for him when he got old. But he also knew that often pastors, especially in small churches in the South, had really rough lives. He was trying to correct me in my calling by simply saying we were very low middle income. He just simply said, well, son, if this is God, then I'm not going to give you any more money to help you with your education. I told him that was fine. I had no money, of course. I would just join the Air Force and work hard and get them to believe in me. And then I'd go to med school and then pay it back. And a couple of days later, I went back to him and I said, dad, do you ever remember me knowingly disobeying you? Now, mind you, I had plenty of spankings, ADD. I got a lot. But when my father told me to do something, I did it. And I did it right then or whenever it was he told me to do it. And he thought for a moment, he said, I I cannot remember a time. And I said, Dad, if I won't disobey you, how can I disobey my heavenly father? And he got very somber, of course. A couple of days later, he came back to me and he said, son, I do understand and I'll be there for you. And it didn't mean I didn't have to work. It just meant that he would do what he could. The Heavenly Father does the same thing. He never lets us down. He always does what he can, but his resources are unlimited. I didn't really give in to the Lord. I thought I did, but I didn't. I went back to Ole Miss. I had a lot of leadership potential through my fraternity. I was already in a bunch of offices and that was hard to give up as well. And so I made a deal with God. Archie Manning was in our fraternity, uh, Trent Lott, the senator. Uh, it, was, it was really the thing to do to get ahead. And uh, I was pretty, I guess, materialistic in that way. I said, okay, daddy, I can go to medical school, become an MD, not surgeon. I can go to seminary in the same amount of time, and then I can be a medical missionary and I can fulfill what you ordained for me. And he said, 
after about half of a semester. And I thought I was literally losing my mind out of disobedience. He said, I didn't call you to be any of those things. I called you to share Jesus with others. Hmm. And I was broken in my little dorm room one day. And I just said, Daddy, whatever it is you want. Kind of reminds me of Mr. Graham down in Florida after his girlfriend turned him down for marriage and he was so broken, he went in the woods and said, Daddy, whatever you want me to be, I'll be. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. I didn't know that story. And that's what I said to him. So he turned me back toward ministry. I went home and told mom and dad and they said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to Union uh, College, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee now. And they said, we think you're losing your mind. And I said, well, I can't really deny that I look like I'm losing my mind. They said, you're going to stay home and we're going to watch you for a semester while you go to a junior college. And I said, fine. I loved it. I really enjoyed that junior college, but I knew what God had called me to do. And so I had set my sights on seminary. I wanted to go to the evangelical one because that's what God told me. And God in prayer told me, no, Southwestern. So I drove down to New Orleans Seminary. I had no money. I actually had to save money for gas. And that was a nine-hour drive. And I had no money to spend the night. <laughs> so I had to drive down, walk the campus, meditate, pray to God, and drive home in the same day. And it's a long drive. God just said no. And then he sent me uh, up to Southern Seminary, which was quite liberal at the time, not now. And God said yes. And that's where I went. When it was all said and done, your earthly father was very proud of you. I remember my mother, her whole life, this little Japanese four foot eleven lady, always told everybody, "My my Dougie, he's going to be a doctor. He's going to be a doctor." You know, she always thought I was going to be a doctor, and I never became a medical doctor. But uh, she was so proud when I became a doctor in ministry. She was one of the happiest ladies, and watching the journey of my life and seeing how I had changed because. Prior to that, she saw the other Doug, and, right. but she saw what I'd become in Christ. And of course, before she passed away many years ago now, in fact, she looked at me more like her pastor. I remember the last words she spoke to me before she passed said, Dougie, pray. I remember that moment was so holy to me because for my mother to be looking at me and recognizing that I'm not just her son, I was a man of God that she trusted. And I know that I know your parents and so many others have gotten to be very proud of you as well. You and I and all of us have many friends that are doctors and surgeons and in the marketplace, and that is a calling. In fact, one good friend of ours who's a part of our network of ministries uh, has Medical Missions International. Uh, I remember the day that he was coming to my weekly Bible studies back in the 80s, and he was doing his residency at Memorial Southwest in Houston, and he pulls me outside the Bible study with tears, and then became pretty deep weeping, I said, what's wrong, Dr. Cordermont? And he said, I sense the Lord's telling me that when I finish my residency, I have to go to be a missionary in Nigeria and help set up Bible school and medical clinics. I said, that's great. And he said, yes, but I'm not married. Would you pray that God will give me a godly wife that will have a calling to missions? And thank God that he met Velvet and they've been doing missions for all these years and had practices and actually owns a clinic in College Station, Texas as well. There is something about surrendering to whatever God calls us to do, but see it as our mission, as our, we're all called to be missionaries into the culture. Dr. Randall Pinnell has been a, a friend and a mentor. He was my Old Testament 
theology uh, professor back in the 80s. And I remember one time he looked at me and said, Doug, your calling is what God puts you into, whatever it may be. But the reality is, is that being in this vocational ministry, doing ministry is not easy. And so if there's anything else that carries your passion more than this, then go do it. Of course, the Lord has taken me in this journey for 40 years now, and I've never looked back, although there has been some difficult times. And I know for you as a leader that many look to, I've had the highest regard and admiration, respect for you all these years that I've known you, not because of your position, but because of who Christ is in you. There's no doubt that the very passion God's given you is why you do what you do. How did you end up moving from the ministries that you were connected to? Because of your humility, you probably don't want to talk about it, but for our sake, it helps us to understand that God has us moving in a journey and a trajectory that moves us into the places that we are. And we sometimes don't realize where we're going to. We look at where God's brought us from. How has God brought you in this journey of ministry and then ultimately becoming a part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and the incredible things that God's allowed you to be a part of there and even helping with the legacy of Billy Graham as you were the vice president and also over directing over the Billy Graham Library and now other areas of ministry there at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. What brought you and has kept your passion to keep doing what you're doing? Well, obviously, thank you, Doug. I, obviously, our greatest guiding force is that others can know him. Uh, when you do meet Jesus, I mean, he is the best friend you could ever have, and he will never, ever, ever fail you. A little side note, when we live on the road like we have directing crusades internationally, domestically, uh, people say, how do you stay pure? My wife asked me that one day and I said, honey, I love you. And, you know, you've kept yourself so well. You're a beautiful woman. If you, if you know these cars, well, let me just use one you would know. Uh, you don't look at Volkswagens on the road if you've got a Corvette in the driveway. That's the way I explained that to her. But I said, you know, baby, you see me basically weekends most of the time, but Jesus sees me all the time. And Mr. Graham once was asked, when do you pray? And he said, well, I'm, I'm praying right now. And I think walking with the Lord is right now. It, it's not something you do on Sundays or other times or when you're thinking ministry. The sovereignty of God, it guides us. Now, the Bible makes it very clear there's nothing wrong with leadership. I'll, I'll just read from 1 Timothy to aspire to leadership is an honorable ambition. I never thought that way. I never thought about being a leader as a surgeon. I never thought about being a leader as a pastor. I knew the vanity of the human heart. And the Bible also says you seek great things for yourself. Leave off seeking them. And that's kind of what God did to me. He just kind of moved me away from Tom and toward himself. And it came from obedience. I honestly never wanted to hurt my mother or father by disobeying, and I never wanted to hurt my heavenly father, but I knew if I did, I could confess right then and be convicted right then, confess right then, and then like getting on a clover leaf on a freeway, get right back on. When God sent me to Southern Seminary, I just prayed, Lord, maybe the best student you can make me because often evangelists are looked down on academically, and he really guided me in that direction. And immediately I saw all of these wonderful men and a few ladies had become, begun to go. 
And I just wasn't wired like them. And I could not figure out why I was there. I knew God put me there. But they, the pastoral heart is a special heart. And it's a calling. I think it's the greatest calling in the world, personally. And that's why I've loved working with churches and pastors all these years, wherever we have ended up in crusades or campaigns or celebrations or festivals, whatever we call them. And I'm at Southern Seminary, and I'm literally wondering, why am I here? We had a great evangelism professor, so I started going to his classes as much as I could. And he got cancer and left. And then a wonderful man of God, this is the sovereignty of God again. Dr. Louis Drummond from Spurgeon's College in London, first evangelism professor in uh, Europe, actually, came to our seminary, no children. He began to adopt a bunch of us. Tom Rayner, Lifeway, Bill Roberts, president of Midwestern, myself, David Bruce, Mr. Graham's assistant. There's just a bunch of us. I think eight of us preached his funeral. He put us under his wing and saved us from the liberality that Southern had at that time. So at the end of my career, God had honored the academic piece. And don't get me wrong, I had to work. So I worked a full-time job. I had a church on weekends. I went to school full-time. I had a wife and child. I was really tired by the end of my three and a half years at seminary. I could run, I could jog one side of one block. I was how tired I was. And Dr. Drummond came to me and he said, I have you a physician at Oxford in England for your PhD. But Dr. Barry White at Regents College. And I, Dr. Drummond, I can't do that. And he said, why? I said, I wasn't called to be an academic. I wasn't called. I'd love to do that. I love to study. I love to learn. I said, I can't do that. Besides, I don't have any money. And I've got a wife and child. I didn't know how many wealthy Southern Baptists there were. And he said, I've got that cared for, and you're going. And I said, so I can't. I honestly can't. I can't. I can't go. And I said, it would, it would like be a diversion in, in whatever God has for me. I, I don't understand it, but I, I can't go. And he said, well, I'm starting the D-Man program, and I've got an emphasis in evangelism we haven't had. Would you be my first student? And I said, um, sure. That makes complete sense. So I thought I would leave one semester, graduate, and head to the D-Man program. He came back to me and said, well, the board changed the flow. Again, God's sovereignty. And I, said, I was not happy about that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you've got to do a two-year internship and then come back for your academic portion. And I said, Dr. Drummond, you know that was made for pastors because the church loves you in two years. But in evangelists, you're going to be broke if you come back in two years. And he's, he looked at me and I looked at him and it just it was like God speaking. And I simply said, aren't you the Billy Graham Chair of Evangelism, Professor? He said, sure. And I said, well, I, know, I knew the board was liberal. They didn't even like Billy Graham, frankly. And they actually ridiculed him. And you could hear them after he spoke at our seminary when you walked by the staff lounge. And so I said, well, could you ask Mr. Graham if I could do six months with his team rather than two years on my own? I'd learn a lot more. And secondly, could you ask the board if they would allow this? And everybody said yes which was God's sovereignty. And uh, here I am. And at the end of my six months, God spoke again and said, they're going to ask you to stay. And I went to my wife and said, we've got to pray. And they did, they did the last day, the very last day, Charlie Riggs, Sterling Houston, hauled me under while Mr. Graham was actually preaching and said, we'd like you to stay. And I said, absolutely. Then I knew that for which I was raised to do. I wasn't wired to be the pastor 
I miss not having a home 35 years somewhere, 20 years, and uh, 108 countries and 50 states. But I've seen God work in surgery, spiritual surgery that I would have never dreamed. So ambition is his, and we have to fling away our own and let him flow through us. I'll just read you a little part of a great quote by A.W. Tozier. A true and safe leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead but is forced into a position of leadership by the inward pressure of the Holy Spirit and the press of external situations. Such were Moses and David. The true leader will have no desire to lord it over God's heritage, but will be, and I saw this in Mr. Graham, humble, gentle, self-sacrificing, and altogether as ready to follow as to lead. When the Spirit makes it clear that a wiser and more gifted man than himself has appeared. Again, the, the sovereignty of God, obedience, humility, key words for us as servant leaders. It reminds me of even what Paul said throughout Scripture in the New Testament, when he even refers to himself as an apostle, he uses the term bond servant. Right. And too many times we get caught up in titles rather than function. Even though you may not have been in the, the traditional term pastor, God has given you, what's given the passion of your heart continues to be winning souls and expanding the purposes of God, the kingdom of God on the earth. But uh, you've also become a pastor in, in many ways. You've been a, a bond servant and a pastor to many others and really having a pastor's heart, even though you have a heart for winning souls. And uh, at least for I've seen that in the years I've known you. In 2019, prior to the 2020 pandemic, you and I, and I know others on this call, had been a part of joining with leaders across the world to declare that 2020 was going to be the global year of the Bible. In retrospect, and in God's providence, there's no doubt that the Lord was trying to get our attention that we need to, to be able to get through the wilderness journeys, the challenges. We need the substance of His Word and His presence more than ever before. And although it's been a difficult couple of years, I've seen an increase of opportunities as we uh, use new wineskins. Uh, we've seen a lot of people come to Christ, even in the last couple of years in the midst of the pandemic. And what are some of your observations of uh, being there at Billy Graham Evangelist Association of having to put on, getting using new wineskins, but at the same time, have you seen an increase of people's interest for the gospel in the midst of these difficult times? Absolutely. I, I think one of the dilemmas of being an evangelistic organization with COVID is you can't travel. Those smaller ministries, especially without the resources we've had, did turtle. And they had to turtle. They had to save themselves in many ways. But we began to use Zoom. We had a young pastor that we've been working with in London and the UK who had 100 in his church. And then six months later with Zoom, he's got 10,000 in his church. Wow. And about the 15th of March, 2020, he called Franklin and said, Franklin, can you share the gospel in 60 seconds? Well, I'm not sure Mr. Graham could have done that, but Franklin, you know, he can do it. By the way, Franklin, I've been prayer partners since 1975. And if I seem derogatory, it's because we've been around each other a long time. So Franklin said, well, I think so. Uh, and he said, well, I, I've got the money. I'll send it to you. And by the way, prayer partner means we pray for each other the rest of our lives. So literally in my daily quiet time, I pray for Franklin every day. And he's so busy. He told me, I pray for you every year. So he gets it in. He thinks once a year, <laughs> not always. 
and Franklin was actually in pilot training in Savannah. And he, we sent a video team down to him that day and shot a 60-second spot, which was awesome. The very first one was awesome. He said, nobody I've ever worked with moves that fast. Well, he didn't know Franklin. And so he sent half the money because he didn't, he didn't have all the money. Nobody moves that fast. And then he sent the rest. And we started the prayer line. And I got a call on a Saturday morning, 7.30, from Franklin's office and said, can you guys have our prayer line up and running by next Friday to cover calls from all over the nation? Well, we had a prayer line. It was like a doctor's office, phone system, 55 phones. Oh, we called the company that we got the 55 lines from and said, uh, how, how many more can we get? They said, you're maxed. And I said, well, we're not maxed. We got to figure this out. And they said, well, that's all we can do. And I said, well, how many 55s can we buy? And they, they came back to us and said 11. I said, okay, we want 11 55 lines. And they said, you don't understand. There's no computerization that between those 55 and everything will be manual, all the scheduling, all the movement of names of your staff. And we didn't have but just a few staff here in the office. I said, fine, we'll take it. But between that Saturday and the next Friday, we had put together the entire training package. We had it ready to stream. We had contacted all of our rapid response team chaplains around the nation, all together, counting those in the cafeteria and those online. We trained 800 people, never dreaming that there was a pool of need, spiritual need out there that was being tapped in the midst of COVID. So Monday night, we started those 60-second spots. And from Fox News alone, we had 1,300 calls in three minutes. So the heart of the nation was, was fearful heart, was crying out for hope. And to shorten the whole story, we, we've, got, we've got new software, new scheduling. But in the first two months, every person here that worked on the line was weeping at some point. It was, we never stopped, 24-7, seven, seven days a week. Young mm-hmm. people, older people, I mean, tears would come. Uh, we were borrowing people from every closed department and putting them on the phones and training them. We, we just tapped today 1,090,000 people that we've prayed with. And out of those, we've had nearly 24,000 decisions. They call for prayer, but our job is to share the gospel with them and either have them renew their faith or come to Christ. We've had 11,000 first-time decisions. So by using the resources we didn't even know we had, but we had them, God showed us that there was a pool of fish to be harvested for him, like the disciples went out and cast the net on the other side of the boat, and God responded dramatically. The same was true with our internet. We've had now 2.8 million people in about eight years who've actually doing the follow-up. And uh, we've had three times that many who've made commitments, but we're actually processing 2.8 million out of over 70 million people who've seen the gospel. So using technology in any and every way we could, whether Zooming or the telephone, internet, texting, but the need was there. And one last thing, we knew we would have suicides. We knew people were desperate. And so we trained up. Everybody, at first we started training a small group, but it wasn't big enough. So then we trained everybody in how to handle suicides. And we'll get every week 10 to 30 suicide calls. And suicide means they use the word, they have an implement to do it with, they have the motivation, and they're going to do it now. And when we share Jesus with those people, we start out with 20 
let's say average a week, and we end up only calling wellness checks, that's police going to check on them because they're really, they're really on the verge of killing themselves. We've had 21 average a week, and we've had 1.9 wellness checks because the gospel saves. Well, there's so many things that I think we still, the unknowns, but I know this, and you quoted A.W. Tozier, of course, because of Leonard Ravenhill's influence in my life. He introduced me to a lot more of the writings and teachings and messages of A.W. Tozier. One of the things that I love to quote often, especially in the context where we become institutional as as the church rather than the incarnational presence of God and, and keeping our focus, I think we've seen so many leaders fail. Because, you know, and no leader sets out to fail. No one says, I can't wait to fail. Circumstances of life create environments in which we either compromise or we become discouraged. And I've always said discouragement is like a powerful drug. And of course, scripture says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a merry heart does good like medicine. But I love this one quote by A.W. Tozier. He says, self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. And I realize even in my own life, I want to make sure that I don't allow self-absorption, self-righteousness, self-centeredness drive me, but I want to make sure that I get out of the way so that Christ in me and his light would shine in such a way that others would see Christ and not see me. And that's not an easy place when we live in the natural realm. And Tom, I know that in your journeys all these decades and serving the Lord, seeing millions respond to the gospel, in the advent of social media, everything looks good. You know, we have this compensatory facade. We we can put up these images of everything's great, but we're having to compensate in other ways for the lack on the inside. But in your life, have there been unexpected detours that maybe could have knocked the wind out of you, but yet by that covenant commitment with the Lord, you've been able to move through those places, keep your eyes fixed on the destination and not on what you were going through. That's a very good question. Um, I, I think the uh, joy of being a part of the Graham family, I don't mean the Graham named family, but the team has helped all of us. I had a uh, mentor named Charlie Riggs who met with me every week. He was the seventh navigator in the navigator growth. And he was an old military man and he was tough as nails on me. Uh, and he would dig into every part of my life, always. And I told my wife, I don't even know, knowing how driven ADD person can be once focused. I'm not even sure I'd have a marriage without that discipline from the team. And the Billy Graham team was just like the disciples, just ordinary men and women. We had women as committed as men who were utterly, 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 utterly committed to the gospel. And because of that, we were committed to each other, regardless of our differences, regardless of our denominational backgrounds, regardless of our accents, regardless of our ethnic group uh, origins. And ambition led by the wayside in most cases because we could confront one another directly. I think the greatest brokenness of my life has been finding myself. And early on in prayer, as I prayed for the sin of the world, one day God in his providence held the mirror of Jesus in front of my face in my quiet time. And I saw myself reflected in his purity. And I saw all the black spots of Tom Phillips. And uh, the breaking was pretty intense. But the um, presence of God that had already been there became overwhelmingly consistent. And I have a feeling that that is what God has used 
to guide a very, very, very inadequate farm boy from Mississippi into the places that I didn't deserve to be, but it was his call and he made it happen. And I don't know how to get around the fact that I don't deserve to be here. And I'm honored to serve the Lord regardless of position or place. You know me, Doug. If I had become that surgeon, I had my house plans drawn. I had my parents' house plans drawn. I had a vision of owning a small southern town, at least half of it, by the time I was 55 and set the city up on the hill there. I think I would have multiplied millions in the bank at 55, retired. But there would be no way, had I followed my course, that I could have been here today in the darkest hour where light can shine the greatest and the momentum for true awakening has never been more imminent uh, when the church in survival has pulled its survival waters into the taproot because it's attacked on every side. But God has told us in the last days, he'll have a latter rain. He'll pour out his spirit on his kids. And the taproot will not only fill with water in the tree of life, but it'll flow through the trunk into the limbs and we'll have the greatest harvest the world has ever seen. I wouldn't trade anything I've been through, and those lonely hours on the road are lonely, but I had plenty of work to fill them, to say the least. But I'm just grateful to be here whenever it looks like evil could win, knowing that God is the victor. Even though I've been at this only 40 years compared to some of our friends, and of course, they see Jerry Wiles there, who's never left his passion for winning souls, and first met, I think, when you were at HBU, Houston Baptist University, Jerry. And, yeah. Uh, but for me, I think of even at this many years serving the Lord, I've learned from Leonard Ravel, never take yourself so serious, only take God serious. Amen. And I have to remind myself of that every day throughout my prayer times. But also, you know, what we've called this imposter syndrome. Sometimes I catch myself thinking, how in the world have I gotten in this position where people are looking to me for any sort of leadership? Because I sure feel like I'm an imposter. I mean, I don't feel like I fit it. I'm beyond my pay grade. I feel like I'm not educated enough. I'm not smart enough. And yet, in the little pieces that God gives me, he allows me uh, the privilege of his calling. And that's one of the things I pray every morning in one of my two prayer times in the morning is that, God, I thank you for the joy of your salvation and the privilege of your calling. I realize it is truly a privilege in whatever capacity, be it small or great, to just make myself available to be used by God every day. Two quick thoughts. One of them is literally from Shakespeare, which is hilarious. In the words of Wolseley to Cromwell, Cromwell, I charge thee, fling away ambitions. By that sin fell the angels. How can man then, the image of his maker, hope to profit by ambition? And one other one, J. Oswald Sanders in Spiritual Leadership. Our word ambition derives from the Latin word meaning canvassing for promotion. I'm going to skip a bunch. Ambitious men and women enjoy the power that money or authority brings. Such carnal ambitions were roundly rebuked. True leader will never canvas for promotion. And I think of Jesus as our example. And uh, Mr. Graham has certainly been that example. One quick story. I just had this funny feeling one afternoon at the library. I already had my gym bag out. I'm ready to go. It was after closing time and something just in my spirit said, go to the front. Oh, man. So I know that voice or spirit or whatever it is. So I had to do it. And I laid my gym bag aside. 
And I get rid of the energy of the ADD guy at the end of the day at the gym. My wife's very grateful for that before I come home. And uh, I went to the front and I saw this probably six foot six, very, very well-dressed, handsome African-American brother moving out of the library. Uh, there's nobody there. I mean, it's closed. And he, had, he was late, I guess, coming out of the gallery. So surely one of our men was overseeing that. And I just felt that's the man. So I ran after him. He had a big Bible. And he said, oh, you're the man I need to see. And uh, I said, okay, fine. So we sat down for an hour. And he said, I want to know, I've been here five times. I've moved here from New Jersey. I'm planning a church. And I want to know the secret to Billy Graham's success. And I said, well, what do you think it is? And he started naming me all the materialistic aspects and the visible aspects of the successful men of God. He was watching entourage, cars, size of the church, on and on and on position. I said, did you see any of that in the journey of faith when you went through it about Mr. Graham? And he said, no, I haven't. So there's something else. And I said, well, please tell me your name again. I still knew it, but I wanted to hear him. And he gave me his name. And I said, that, that's the secret to success. And he said, what? I said, can you die to that name? Because Billy literally died to that name. If you knew him, talk with him. The humility that allowed Jesus to flow through unhindered made him what Billy Graham at his best, though successful in the eyes of the world. And I shared this with this young man. You'll be successful. He had all the markings. But if you want to be great in God's eyes and do more than you could ever dream of, it's between you and Jesus and mm -hmm. out of that name. Amen. Are there any final thoughts uh, that you might have, Tom? And also, of course, how people can get your book, Jesus Now, uh, God is Up to Something Big. It doesn't just talk about the great revivals of the past, but you also talk about the impediments of what keep us from an awakening revival. And while talking about the importance of this message now more than ever, and of course, I think staying in the word, staying on our knees, you know, it's a it's the power of posture, humility before the Lord and in prayer, staying in his word that will help us overcome the challenges that we've all been facing in the corporate challenge in our country and around the world. But this is a great opportunity. As Jesus said, it shall be an occasion for your testimony. Everything we've said is a daily battle. It's not over once you've made a commitment because the devil hates it. Commitment simply means to go on a mission with Jesus. The hills are up and hills are down. The rivers are deep. The Jesus Now book, the word awakening is coming right out of the bottom of the ink. And I did that on purpose because I didn't see all seven of Charles Finney's indicators operative at the moment. The first one I wrote was called Revival Signs, Join the Coming Great Awakening. All seven indicators were there in America, but very, very, very immature and growing. This one was better. And since then, we've written a couple of others. The funny thing is, we're writing even if they don't sell because God tells us to hopefully he'll bring revival and use them. Revival Now, which is James Burns' book, put into a short form because it's an inch and a half thick book, The Laws of Revival. And we just finished this one called Revival of Holiness for Young People. Again, Bishop Ryle's thick book made into a little tiny one because if we truly have a movement of God, young people especially will want to say, how can I be holy? So we wrote that one. And then Emily and I put together this workbook last year, Ignite Your Passion for Jesus. It's all about Jesus, your guide to personal revival, 12 chapters, five sections each for more of a devotional time. All to say, we expect the Holy Spirit to bring his movement to his kids to be so like Jesus, the world will look in and say, I want to be like that. And there'll be an awakening beyond anything we ever prayed for or dreamed. Amen. 
You're quoting a lot of great people there. And of course, Charles Finney, when he said that revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat, it takes our simple obedience to surrender to God. We need to fertilize the land, tend to the land, plant the seed, water it. God does the miracle in bringing the crop of bringing revival. Tom Phillips, again, thank you. Would you seal us in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be with Doug, Jody, and everyone on the call. We all resonate to the truths that no matter who shares them that we've experienced in our lives, they're your truths. And Father, we pray for each of the ministries. We pray for the technology. You promised us we would do greater things after you. That's hard to comprehend. And yet with technology and the Holy Spirit, it's possible we are beginning to do those kind of things. Explode them, Father. And I pray for everyone on the phone and those they touch, these servant leaders, that their teams would be phenomenally knit together like family without devolution in them, that they would continue to soar for you. And Father, may you make in us what you yourself are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be encouraged, as we always say, meditate on the word. It renews, refreshes, and washes. Uh, Pray the word, uh, because prayer produces intimacy. Speak the word. There is power in the word of God. And let's spread the word. Let the word of God live in us greatly and richly. And let our light so shine in such a way that others might see Christ in us and their lives be transformed. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.